Um, cool. Well, thanks for the invitation to come and share today. It is a real joy to be here. Um, I listened actually to the message last week. It's really challenging to be a guest preacher sometimes because you're like, oh, how will that connect to what's happened the week before? But a necessarily necessary challenge when you're in that pastoral search process. Um, but when I listened to last week's message, it felt like I was back in school. And the reason for that was Mark Ryan was one of my school teachers. So I don't know if that makes, it doesn't really make me feel old or young, but I'm sure it makes him feel old to hear that I'm here today. But um, it was a real joy to listen to him. And he is an excellent communicator, isn't he? Um, and what he shared from Daniel 1 was really helpful, reminding us that actually whatever is happening in our life, in our broader culture, God is in control. He's not taking God by surprise. And that's a great message to be encouraged in. And a great comfort as we seek to follow Jesus in a society which does seem to be moving a little past the things that we value and believe. Um, I suspect for some of you guys here today, as you ponder what is the biggest threat to our church here at Glen Osmond, maybe that's it. Maybe it's the challenge of being the church in an environment that no longer likes the church and what the church believes or stands for, or at least some of those beliefs. Maybe it's the challenge that that brings to be faithful to the gospel when actually it might cost us a little more in the coming generations. Maybe for others, as you think, what are the biggest threats to our church here? Maybe they're different. Um, maybe the biggest threat that you feel is we're just a small church. We go to a pretty small church in West Croydon as well, and I know at times it's easy to feel that there is so much need both within our church and within our community, but there are so few of us around and so few of us able to invite people into the abundant life that Jesus has promised. Maybe the biggest threat is discerning this next pastor. It's actually really encouraging that it sounds really close and go on praying because, um, yeah, it's an important decision to make. Um, so we will be praying for you too in that. Um, but just the uncertainty of when will they arrive? What will they be like? Maybe that feels like a threat at the moment. Today, though, the, the thing I want to speak about actually is unity in the church. Uh, in the New Testament, as you read the letters, one of the biggest threats that keeps coming up to churches is disunity. It'd be foolish to think that, you know, we're different today or just because things are good at the moment, they will, they will always be good. I actually think unity is something that we need to cultivate as the church and protect, not to take it for granted. And in the book of Philippians, Paul actually addresses this issue specifically. If you actually read chapter 4, it's a bit awkward because this letter was read out to the church and he actually names two people and he says, you guys, work it out. We can't just keep going like this. Um, like, Steph, Diana, work it out. It'd be awkward if someone did that, but it's so important that Paul was willing to do that. Uh, so that's what we're going to look at today. And in chapter 2, Paul provides, I think, the great antidote to disunity within the church. Uh, so read with me from verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion and make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, and being one in spirit and of one mind. First thing to always notice when you jump into a new passage like this is the word therefore. Paul isn't just saying this out of nowhere, but he's continuing what he shared in chapter one. Uh, and in chapter one, he's just said, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, he doesn't say, become worthy of the gospel. Actually, the gospel is the thing that makes us worthy before God. But he's saying, 
live your lives in a way that shows the worth of the gospel to show that this good news is so precious to you. And then he goes on to describe what that looks like in his life and in the church. And in these verses, Paul's saying that if you're really a Christian, if this news has affected you in a way that you put your faith in Jesus, be unified. Be the same in your love and attitude. Did you notice in verse 1, Paul just describes a Christian, someone that's been united with Christ, someone that's received comfort from his love, someone that has a common sharing in the Holy Spirit, people that should be characterized by tenderness and compassion. And if this, if this really describes you, if this is you, be like-minded, have the same love, be one in spirit and of one mind. Um, now, the word like-minded uh, here actually just means develop an attitude based on careful thought. Paul wants this church to have the same attitude and love, and this is key to their unity. Um, now, don't mishear that the call to Christian unity, it's not about being uniform. Sometimes this happens in churches, and it's really sad. Paul's not saying everyone needs to look the same. Everyone needs to grow a beard, speak the same, wear similar clothes, have the same hobbies and personality. No. You know, so when Diana talks about book club and loving being part of book club, it's okay if you don't love book club. <laughs> it's okay if you don't even love books. You can still be part of this church. I can pick on Josh because he just walked out. When Josh tells you how good he is at basketball, it's okay. You don't have to join him on the court. And it's probably good because he's pretty tall, so he's probably going to beat you on the court if you do. But you don't have to love basketball to be part of this church. At, at my church, there's a lot of guys that love cars and bike riding in Lycra. And I know nothing about cars and I have zero desire to wear Lycra. But that's okay. I don't have to conform to their hobbies and be uniform in that way. It's actually great to have great diversity in those things in our churches. But the call to unity is that of our attitude and love. And in verse 3 and 4, Paul tells us what this attitude and love looks like. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So firstly, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Ambition itself actually isn't a bad thing. If you are ambitious for God's glory, that's wonderful. If you're ambitious to care for the poor and the vulnerable in our society, that's great. If you're ambitious to just do a good job in your work to love and serve others, that's good. But do nothing out of selfish ambition and do nothing out of vain conceit. And conceit is that idea of having just excessive pride in yourself, uh, focusing on you and how great you are and what you've achieved and done. Do nothing out of vain conceit. If our lives in, as individuals in churches are characterized by selfish ambition and vain conceit, I think we all know that's not going to lead to unity. We're all going to be doing our own thing, looking out for ourselves and not for the interests of others. And actually, this is what Paul encourages us to do. He says, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. We're called as Christians to be other-focused, to live for the interests of others above our own. Now, I suspect as you hear that, that's nothing new. Like, that's kind of Christianity 101. <laughs> You know, we live for the sake of others. We live for the benefit of others. It's really simple in principle. So difficult in practice. 
It's so difficult to do it every day, moment by moment. Yet Paul does give this instruction to the church. He says, if you're a Christian, make my joy complete by having this attitude and love. And he goes on actually to tell us that the greatest example of this attitude and love is Jesus. In verse 5, he says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the nature, very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Jesus is this perfect example of attitude and love, which is other-focused. Uh, in verse 6, we see that Jesus is described as being very nature God. Um, now, you guys, you're a good Baptist church, so, you know, you praise and worship Jesus as God. We heard it in the songs earlier. It's good. Um, but it's worth recognizing we'll meet people who won't acknowledge Jesus as God, and not even people who have no interest in the scriptures, but you'll meet people today who will read the same scriptures at you, as you, but will not acknowledge and worship Jesus as God. I was really surprised, actually, as a university student, when I met someone like this for the first time. Uh, they were from the Christadelphian sort of background, if you've heard of them before. Uh, if you're not familiar, um, they basically have the same Bible as us, but they will not worship Jesus as God. And my Christadelphian mate at uni, he wasn't a dummy. He was really smart. He was a doctor in training. And we caught up to read the scriptures for a semester. And I've got to tell you, he knew the Bible really well. Um, and it really shook me as a young Christian at university to meet this guy who used the same Bible as me but didn't worship Jesus as God. You know, and I asked, me, asked myself questions. Why? Why do I worship Jesus as God? And I was really thankful for my local church and my ES staff workers to help me wrestle through this question. Um, and as I found, um, as I read the Gospels again, I had to acknowledge that that's how the first disciples responded to Jesus uh, you might remember in John 20, uh, the story of doubting Thomas. Um, it's kind of a bit unfair or a bit mean to Thomas, I think, because all the disciples, apart from him, they saw Jesus risen, alive, and he missed out. Poor fella. And they all told him about it. Like, Jesus is alive. And he had that famous, you know, I'm, I'm not going to believe that unless I can put my fingers in his nails. Like, I'm not going to believe. And a week later... Jesus appears to him, and it's actually a really awkward incident if you imagine you were there, because Jesus kind of walks up to him and says, well, Thomas, like, do you want to put your hand in my nails now? And, and Thomas is like, no, no. And what he says to Jesus is really interesting there. He says, my Lord and my God. He acknowledges Jesus as his God. Matthew 28 was the other really significant one for me, where I think this is probably before the moment Jesus ascends, and Jesus gives his disciples the Great Commission. If you actually notice the thing that the disciples do that Matthew recorded for us is that they worshipped Jesus, all 11 of them that were on that mountain. And for us today, that isn't, you know, not great, they worship Jesus, but for an Israelite to do that, what was the one, like the one rule that they would have remembered above all else? You worship God alone. Um, so something really significant being told that Jesus is the God that we've, uh, been revealed in the Old Testament. But anyway, that's just a little side note, but I just want to be so clear that there are good reasons why we worship Jesus as God today. But what Paul was telling us isn't so much about that, but what Jesus did as God. Being in the very nature God, he didn't consider equality with God, something to be used to his own advantage. 
Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. You know, all the power, the prestige, the status, honor, and glory that's rightly due Jesus as God, he didn't hold on to. He didn't use for his own benefit. But rather, he made himself a servant by becoming a human. Uh, the fancy name people give for this is the incarnation. It simply means God became man. God became a human. And Diana, you had a chance to do Christmas carols today. We're talking about God becoming human. You've missed it. Could have done Hark the Herald Angel Sing. <laughs> okay, you have to wait another month, everyone. We'll have to wait another month before we get too many Christmas carols. But it's a truth we remember every Christmas, that God is with us, Emmanuel. Um, and it boggles our mind. How does this happen? It warms our hearts as we rightly feel wonder and awe of who God is. Um, And in becoming a man, the thing that's really important to know is that Jesus didn't stop being God. Um, He added humanity to his divinity. The early church wrestled over this, and what they concluded was Jesus had two natures in one person. Um, There's something called the Chalcedonian definition, if you want to Google it and just dig deep into this. Uh, But they wrestled over this question. Was Jesus really God or was he man? What what actually was it? And the answer is both. Fully God, fully man. And this isn't just abstract theology, but it has a really important implication. Because it shows us that what Jesus did in his earthly life is completely consistent with what God would do. In Hebrews, the author says that the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. There's an Aussie scholar who says this, Jesus is the window into the heart of God. To hear Jesus is to hear the word of God. To see Jesus is to see the character of God. To watch Jesus in action is to see God in action. And this is really important because sometimes people read Philippians 2 and they kind of take away their, ah, Jesus is God, but he did a really ungodlike thing in becoming a servant. No, no, no. Jesus acted the way he did. He became a servant precisely because he is God. This is the exact kind of thing that our God would do. Uh, to, to illustrate this, I've been um, driving around our neighborhood recently and seeing, have you guys got local council elections in your district? Yeah, I've never noticed them before, but I think because they're on Facebook now and, I don't know, people want to print more signs and put them up. Uh, but it's the first time I've seen it, but, the, you know, they're not on the news, are they? But our federal, state elections, that's when we see our, politi- our politicians on the news. They head out, they do things, they get into the community, they get involved. Um, you know, they, they visit food shelters and they serve up food. Uh, they go to a construction site and they pick up a shovel for five minutes to dig that one little hole. Or they, at last election, they even go to the hairdressers and they wash people's hair. It's quite interesting. It's a bit bizarre. And I think the reason politicians do this is they want to remind us that they're not so different to us. You know, they are human too, just like us. But it can feel really inauthentic. <laughs> you know, did they really care for that person that they gave food to in that just once-off visit? Did they really worry about that hole that needed digging on that construction site? You know, were they really concerned about that person who needed their hair washed? When they come down to our level, we rightly question their motive. And we wonder, is it to serve or is it just self-seeking to get this photo opportunity? I hope what you can see in what Jesus does in becoming a human, it's completely different. When he comes down to our level, when he becomes a human, it's not out of character in what he does. It's completely in parallel with who he is as a servant-natured God. 
And he doesn't just come for a, a photo shoot or for his benefit, but he comes completely for us. Jesus shows us exactly what God is like. And our God is servant-natured. Wow. I think that's absolutely amazing. And as, as we share with our friends our faith and the gospel, I think one of the key things we need to do isn't to convince them that it's true. I think we just need to remind them of the beauty of what God is like. And I think this aspect of God is very appealing. And in coming, becoming a human, uh, Jesus does it to meet a real need. In verse 8, Paul writes, In being found in appearance as a man, he humble, humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus not only lives for our benefit, but he gives his life for it as well. And actually in Mark 10, my favorite book of the Bible that I have to think of very quickly, Diana, um, Jesus shares his purpose in becoming human. He says, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, in Mark 8 to 10, uh, there's something that particularly is happening here that Mark is trying to draw our attention to. He's trying to show us that Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53. And the suffering servant in Isaiah picks up on this similar language that Jesus' death achieves something, that a payment was made through it. In Isaiah 52, 5, he says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we're healed. In giving his life, Jesus actually meets our deepest need. He pays for our sin to bring forgiveness, but also to bring healing, reconciliation to God. He doesn't just save us from something, but he saves us for something. So Jesus is this perfect example, this other person-focused mindset, living for the benefit of others. And this is something that God the Father 100% endorses. In verse 9, we see that, Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. These verses show us that Jesus isn't just the example for us. but He's our king. He is our Lord. He's not just an advisor or influencer or one of the many voices. And doesn't this description that we get of Jesus as the one who has been exalted to the highest place, doesn't it make selfish ambition and vain conceit so silly? That as we think of how great we are and we live for ourselves in comparison to the one that God has exalted to the highest place. And the thing that I love about these verses is that we see this servant-natured aspect of God is actually true in his own person in his own triune nature, that the Father acts to exalt the Son, that all would worship and honor Jesus. But Jesus does all of this to bring glory to God the Father. All right, so Jesus is our example of humble sacrificial service, and he is our king. So what for us? What does this all mean for us today? I hope, church, you can see that this is a really beautiful way of living of living for the benefit of others. I hope you can see that life in Jesus' kingdom is beautiful. This is why you bring your kids here, isn't it? You want them to taste and see that Jesus is good and to be part of his kingdom as well. And 
this sort of attitude, this sort of love, this is what will guard your church. This is what will lead to unity. As individuals, as you live for the sake and benefit of others, that will prevent so much conflict in your church. Instead of us saying, my way or the highway, we, we consider what is good for our church community. All right, just to wrap up today, church, the great encouragement from this passage is Jesus is not only our example and Lord, uh, but he's also our saviour. If Jesus was just our example, it would crush us, wouldn't it? Because we, we would see it's good, it's beautiful, but it's just unattainable. We don't quite reach it. But as we look at what Jesus has done in the gospel, we remember that he has died for our sins and that he's been raised to give new life and power to change, power to become more like him by his spirit to live this life worthy of the gospel. All right, church, um, I might pray for us now, but the great encouragement from this passage is have this attitude and love which is other-focused. Fight for it each day, work on it, because it is hard and when you fail, remind yourselves of the gospel and that Jesus has died for all of our sin. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his attitude and example. Uh, we thank you for this church here and just the unity that they do have. And thank you for so many kids in this building hearing just of how beautiful and good you are, Lord, and that you are a great and kind God, our saviour and our maker. And God, we're sorry for the times that we haven't lived for the benefit of others. Even this week where we've just put our own needs first, we are sorry, Lord. We pray that you would continue your work changing us, growing us more and more into the image of Jesus for his sake and his glory. Amen. Thank you.